welcome back to Across the Movie Hour, presented by Bulwark Plus. I am your host, Sonny Bunch, culture editor of The Bulwark. I'm joined, as always, by Alyssa Rosenberg of The Washington Post and Peter Suderman of Reason Magazine. Alyssa, Peter, how are you today? I'm well, thank you. I am happy to be talking about movies with friends. First up in controversies and non-troversies, NBC is bailing on the Golden Globes. After a series of studios, including Warner Brothers, Amazon, and Netflix, uh, bailed on participating in the Hollywood Foreign Press Association's annual shindig, um, and stars like Scarlett Johansson denounced the governing body's sexist practices while Tom Cruise returned the three Golden Globes he has won, uh, the network said it will not air the show's 2022 incarnation unless massive changes are made. Um, The Globes was embroiled in scandal even before this year disastrous COVID-related ratings dip. Exposés revealed, among other things, that the HFPA's members were getting rich off participating in junkets and the such, while there were exactly zero black members of the HFPA. That's a problem these days. Uh, The show has always been a bit of a joke, judged as it is by a handful of goobers no one has ever heard of, raining nominations down on series and shows um, that had been kind enough to send the members to fancy locales and put them up in glorious digs. Uh, This results and things like the roundly hated Emily in Paris nabbing a handful of nominations. On the one hand, anything that diminishes the power of the HFPA is probably good because the HFPA is a joke organization and the idea that it should have any actual impact on the Oscars is insane. Um, on the other hand, uh, guys, come on. Like, you knew the deal when you got into bed with these idiots and nothing has changed. I think we can all get off our high horses, Tom Cruise ridiculous sending back your golden globes come on um i i I, we were before this story broke the story broke literally hours before we were going to do this we were going to do a segment on seth rogan and james franco and i felt like kind of the same way when seth seth rogan saying like i'm not going to work with james franco anymore like you worked with him for 20 years like you knew you knew what was going on guy Still, uh, this is a blow, and not just to the award season gadflies. As Eddie Muller, the Noor Foundation founder and president, noted in a thread on Twitter, the HFPA's annual NBC bounty helps keep his and many other organizations doing the important work of film preservation afloat. Uh, Here's Muller. HFPA's charitable trust annually provides grants to film organizations that urgently need subsistence funding. My Noor Foundation would would not be able to save as many films without HFPA's generous aid end quote. Um, Alyssa, isn't there something weird about the fact that what is going to bring down the HFPA is not its terrible taste and not the terrible movies or terrible TV shows that it's awarded, and it's not the terribly blatant corruption amongst the members uh, that is that is the problem here, but because the, coro- the, the, the corrupt idiots handing out the bogus statues just needed, like, some other more diverse corrupt idiots in their crew? <laughs> like, I, I'm, I'm actually, like, it's, it's one of these things where, like, this is like Al Capone getting down for tax evasion style, uh, uh, you know, punishment. I mean, is is that entirely what's happening? Or is it that, um, like many other award shows, the Golden Globes cratered this year and therefore it's maybe worth it to NBC to have some sort of fight, get out of its contract and try and find something that advertisers will actually want to pay to be across it? be across well, well this is i okay this is this is another another angle to all this right is that the uh you know the golden globes were down what 60 percent year over year uh the the thinking is you know award shows are on the, the decline anyway so this is a way for nbc to get out of their contract which i i, I grant there's probably some accuracy to that um 
But it wouldn't have happened without all of this other stuff surrounding it, right? I mean, yeah, like I this. Yeah, I think it's. I think it's a. It's a lot of stuff. For a column I'm working on, I was sort of looking up the list of just terrible things that are associated with the Hollywood Ford Press Association, and there are so many of them that I had forgotten. That in 2018, Brendan Fraser accused the former president of the Hollywood Foreign Press Association of sexually assaulting him. And somehow the guy didn't get thrown out until this year when he sent an email to a bunch of HFPA members saying that Black Lives Matter is a racist hate movement. Like, these people are bonkers. And... So yeah, maybe it's partially about race. Maybe it is about Scarlett Johansson and other people not wanting to participate in the junkets because they don't want to get leered at and sexually harassed in the questions. Um, maybe it's that you know NBC has been paying $60 million a year for the right to do this through 2026. And if you stop being able to sell ads across the thing because 8 million people are watching it, and it has a toxic reputation, like all of that comes together in a gigantic storm. And, you know, maybe even if they have to pay some money to get out of the contract, and it's entirely possible that they're only doing this for 2022. They haven't said that they're trying to get out of the contract entirely, as far as I know. Um, you know, maybe the, like, maybe cutting your losses and not continuing to be associated with an organization that is clearly an omni shambles just makes good sense. I mean, the HFPA is so nuts that they hired Judy Smith, who is the inspiration for Olivia Pope on Scandal, right? Like she's supposed to be the crisis fixer who takes the worst cases. She works with them for a couple of weeks and just decides that they are so terminally screwed up that she quits in disgust, right? I mean, these are like, these are bad people to be in business with, not just because they're racist, not just because they're corrupt, but because they're crazy making. Uh, and nobody wants to work with them. So I think it's any one of a number of things that convince NBC to finally cut bait. But like, it's not just that, you know, the corrupt organization was insufficiently diverse. Um, it's that they're nuts and impossible to deal with. And the publicity is bad. And you can't the, make money off it. The, like, if, if, 40 mi- if 40 million people had tuned into the Golden Globes, NBC would not be doing this. Yeah, so I, the NBC statement definitely leans on um, what I think are pretty clearly references to the lack of diversity. So the NBC statement is, we continue to believe that the HFPA is committed to meaningful reform. However, change of this magnitude takes time and work, and we strongly feel the HFPA needs to do it right, blah, 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 basically, and then says, we're not going to air it next year. We hope we can air it in 2023. The reform plan that the HFPA released was um, at least partially about increasing, I'm reading from Variety here, uh, includes measures to increase the number of people of color in its ranks, also includes new restrictions on gifts that members could receive, payments for work on their committees, that sort of thing. So it wasn't exclusively about diversity, but diversity was certainly a a headline part of the reform plan uh, that NBC is citing as as not being there yet and not being ready to go uh, which is why they're saying they won't air the show next year. Yeah, I mean, I like, I, I, I just, I'm curious what sort of reforms they could institute that that are going to, you know, uh, get to the heart of the problem, which is that it's it's a terribly corrupt organization where where the actual quality of the thing in question doesn't matter. I mean, this is this is again, this is like the the crime with the Golden Globes. I don't care that they're crazy. I don't even care that they're corrupt, really. Like the problem is, you do care is, about the corruption. A I care. Little. I care more about the corruption 
than I do about anything else involved in this story. But like the 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 thing that is bad about the HFPA is that they are awarding things that are not good. Like their their taste it's their taste that's bad more than anything else. How are they supposed to solve the fact that their taste is bad? Pia Zadora, best newcomer, you know. They're and they've always been bad, right? I mean, the right. Charges that the AGFPA has fixed votes on things go back to 1958. <laughs> right. I mean, there was like a FTC scandal about this. There was like they were there were there were there was talk about them like they couldn't be on TV for a long time because because of this sort of thing. I I mean, look the 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 problem again the problem here is that you have like what what is what's the actual number? It's like 75 or 84 or something like that. It's 80 something, I believe. People on the board, faceless, nameless goobers as i put it making all these decisions i like what is what is the point of the golden globes if i and this is and this is my like kind of final point here is that like the gold the globes have always been ridiculous why not just let why not just let them continue to be ridiculous i don't like i don't understand why people are getting uh, you know, up on their high horse now about it. I that's what I that's the thing that I don't get. They so can NBC's move to be ridiculous. I just think that NBC can't make as much money off the ridiculousness as it used to. Yeah. That's what it comes down to. Part of this is part of this is uh, that NBC is following the pack. This comes after you have Netflix, Amazon, Warner Media all saying that they're not going to work with the, with HFPA, right? And so to some extent, NBC just is sort of following the lead of other big corporations in the film industry here. Uh, but it's also, I think, pretty clearly, like the, like I said, the stated reason for dropping them is is that they're not fulfilling their reform plan. You see some of the reporting in Variety saying, oh, they had this reform plan, but they didn't actually have any plans to implement it on a timeline. They just like came up with some stuff that they were maybe going to do at some point, whenever, whenever they felt like it. Um, Less but it wasn't corruption. Real. Right. Yeah. Let's, let's maybe not, like, minorities. But, like they weren't really going to do it. And NBC like, hands like, started up to air. realize that they weren't really going to do it. But I also <laughs> think that, that so much of the stated reason is a cover for the fact that they're looking at the Golden Globes ratings this year, looking at the overall product from this show and saying, we do, we do not have uh, the ability to make money on this anymore. And we are skeptical that we are going to have the ability to make money off of this. And that's partly because of the scandal that's associated with it. It's a partly because all of these big companies, right? I mean, if you don't have Netflix and Amazon working with the H with HFPA, then that rules a lot of films out of contention that pulls big stars out of uh, being able to appear for this, uh, for the ceremony, right? Like it just, there is a sort of a, there's a death spiral here going on in which everybody is at once saying for whatever reason, and some of it is, you know, some of it's diversity, some of it's they're crazy, some of it's they're corrupt, some of it's just, hey, the, the ceremony ratings were really spectacularly bad this year. Everybody is saying at the same time, what are we doing here? HFPA is not providing us with any value in exchange for our engagement with them. And what our engagement with them is getting us is negative press because we are supporting a group that is crazy and everybody hates for some reason. For good reason. Uh, here's, I guess, here is the... For many different uh, reasons, some of which may be great reasons and others of which may be not so great reasons. But it seems like there are, there are quite a few good reasons to dislike the HFBA. Here's here's the real question is if this is if this is a move by NBC to get out of an onerous contract and I think it largely is um it's got to be at least part that, of it yeah does that mean do we think then that this means that NBC is looking at 
the awards landscape in general and saying these things are donezo because i like i i am curious I, they 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 were all trending down anyway we're all tv is trending down uh, and people are moving to different forms of watching content they're getting away from uh, uh, you know, scripted programming on TV. There's lots of time shifting. It used to be that live events like the Globes or sports or whatever were the kind of last bulwark against this. Uh, but but now you have this situation where all of the award shows did between 8 and 10 million viewers uh, this year. And that's because of COVID. It's because of weird release schedules. It's because of whatever. But the point is people aren't watching award shows. Do we look at this and say... Okay, NBC has decided that live award shows are no longer a thing that are going to be a going concern in like four to five years. Uh, yes, I think that's basically right. And uh, that's especially true with the Golden Globes, because to the extent that they had a value, the ceremony itself had a value, it was in being a warm-up for the Oscars. It didn't actually have all that much value on its own. What it was was a bellwether. It told you sort of where the awards race was. It didn't, it, but the, nobody actually cared about the, about the Golden Globes independently of, of the Oscars or the rest of the awards race. And so, so the Golden Globes were pretty clearly going to be the first on the chopping block as as these things started to you know to to get cut from network schedules because who actually cares about the golden globes and this is why this is such an easy decision i think for nbc to make is that there just aren't that many people in the world i'm not saying there's nobody ev out there ever but there just aren't that many people who really care about the golden globes i mean they, they got 14 fans right it's like it's just it's not a thing that anybody gives a shit about Alyssa, do we think uh, that the the you know kind of decline of awards viewing tells us anything about the state of you know what what people actually care about? Are we just is this is this a is this a we don't care about these specific movies things or we're tired of hearing from the rich and the famous uh, give themselves awards and talk about how great they are? I think it's probably a combination of both those things. I'd also add that the rise of social media has made um, award shows less valuable as sort of a glimpse into famous people reacting to things, right? I mean, it used to be that, you know, you got your information about celebrities, you know, way back in the day from, you know, sort of heavily controlled gossip columnists, then from glossies like People, um, that had this sort of very filtered and edited view of celebrities. And so the Golden Globes actually in particular were known for being sort of like a drunk and out of control. And they were an opportunity when a celebrity, perhaps genuinely surprised by a win or a loss, might do something unusual. I mean, you know, for all that it's like, it's sort of a weird moment, like Kanye West rushing the stage and, you know, interrupting Taylor Swift is like actually a genuinely great moment of live television. But if you don't need that to see Kanye West like acting out whatever his personal service is, if you don't need the Golden Globes to see celebrities like get a little sloppy because they're doing that on their own Instagrams in order to boost their overall numbers so they can sell, you know, sponsored content to you, like there, the filter is down between famous people and Hollywood. Um, and in many cases, it has been deliberately lowered by the stars themselves. And so the award shows are less useful as a peek into that world. Um, and I think that I would not 
underestimate that either. Exit question. Is Ricky Gervais the only man who can save us now? Alyssa, rolled your eyes so hard, they fell out of your head. If by save us now you mean prompt me to throw myself into the sun without JVL having to launch me there, then yes. Peter. No one can save us. No one can save us. Uh, I, I mean, I do think Ricky, Ricky Gervais is is uh, at least more entertaining than, you know, 90% of everything else that happens on that show. So come on, Ricky. Come back to the show. Save us. We're, 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 all, we're all hoping for you. Uh, if you enjoy the show and who doesn't, it's great. Make sure to head over to atma.thebulwark.com where we'll have a special bonus members only episode arguing about one of our favorite topics, which Jason Statham movie is best. Do we prefer funny kick-ass Jason Statham or somber kick-ass Jason Statham? Hard to say. Uh, it's the perfect follow-up to our discussion of the new film Wrath of Man, only in theaters, which starts right now. Uh, now onto the main event. Wrath of Man, the new action thriller from Guy Ritchie and Jason Statham. Ritchie and Statham previously teamed up for Lockstock and Two Smoking Barrels and Snatch, as well as the modestly disastrous Revolver. And the trailers for Wrath of Man promise something kind of in, those ve- in the vein of those films. Stylish, a bit funny, full of action. And instead, what we got was something more akin to a British crime drama from the 1970s or early 1980s, uh, a darker, more remorseless, slightly less frenetic movie that called to mind Get Carter, the Michael Caine version, or The Long Good Friday uh, than it did Snatch or recent Richie hit The Gentleman. Um, I have some quibbles with Wrath of Man. There's a whole subplot with Andy Garcia as a detective that's completely unnecessary. I have no idea why it's in there. Uh, And I'm not sure I loved the chapter-like structure or the way the film constantly shifts POV, which reveals too early the central mystery of why Statham's character, H, is trying to catch a gang of armored car thieves. Uh, But on the whole, I really dug its whole vibe. Uh, This is a movie that lures you in with silly banter before revealing itself to be a brutal and violent journey into the heart of criminal darkness. Um, The violence is intense, but never cartoonish. The choices these characters make uh, have irreparably terrible and terrifying consequences, Plastic bags have never been scarier, for instance. Uh, And Statham has rarely been this somber. Not my favorite mode for him, to be entirely honest. While Scott Eastwood surprisingly, is finally learning to embrace his father's stone-faced sneer and glare. It's, it's, he's getting there, folks. He's getting there. Um, we can delve into the plot a little bit more in a moment. Again, I have some issues here, particularly with the ending. Uh, but I, I just want to take a moment to luxuriate in the fact that this is a real-ass movie playing in real-ass movie theaters. Uh, like the opening opera invasion of Tenet, the opening shot of this film has a vibe that screams cinema. It's a single shot that swoops into an armored car, positions us in the back seat. Um, Um, and obscures our view out of the front windshield while intentionally making it kind of hard to hear what's happening. Now... It's it you're t- it's telling a whole little story in this two minute shot, and it's the sort of thing that really I you still just don't see on TV that much. It's it's a it's a movie shot. It's a shot that screams, "Hey, we're in the movie theaters." Peter, what did you make of Wrath of Man? I quite liked it. Um, this is. This is a departure for Guy Ritchie, whose movies I find generally enjoyable, with some exceptions, uh, Chav King Arthur, uh, notably. Um, and But this is, this is something else. This is a different kind of film for him, even though it is another uh, crime film with Jason Statham in the lead. And that has a whole bunch of like stylishly dressed men, you know, sort of uh, it, a bunch of different gangs kind of going after each other, right? This is... This is a movie that flirts at times with real darkness and real sadness. And it is, it's not just grim for its own sake. 
Um, it's grim because there's something, because there's something sort of real at the heart of this, and I can't, uh, you know, I like. I almost wonder after after the gentleman. Um, I said this to Alyssa after the screening. Um, I almost wonder, like, what what got Guy Ritchie to make this film? What was what is it? It seems like there's something sort of strangely personal about this, even though it is not an obviously like personal. You know, this isn't a story about his life where he's transferred, right? It's not that kind of personal. It's it's something else, though. But there's there's just something in this where it really has like a kind of a depth of feeling to it that I think is is um, is unusual in his work, um, and is unusual to see in an action movie like this because it is it is ultimately about uh, a father's pain and about uh, about loss um, in a way that you just don't see in these movies. Uh, it's also just it's exceptionally well directed. That opening shot, it's really. Is is so great, and you you talked about just sort of the cinematic quality of it, um, but I just want to I want to praise this as we have seen in the last thirty years or so, really sort of in the post heat era, so many big heist sequences, and so few of them have really kind of moved the needle. And like you, at this point, you've kind of seen all the ideas, right? And you can even like think of something like um, like Without Remorse, which was which in, this movie in many ways delivered on some of the promises that without remorse made in its trailers uh, you know and you, there's that terrible kind of like hijacking you know sequence at the at dallas airport in without remorse that just borrows a couple of tropes from heat and then doesn't even pay them off very well and this movie actually gives us something different it gives me gives you something i've never seen before in a heist sequence which is a single shot from inside the car and so what you are you're not feeling it from the perspective of the robbers you're feeling it from the perspective of the people who are being robbed and and you're getting the information in a lot of ways now eventually they move out of the the truck but you're getting the the information that they have which is not enough which is and it's it's scarier because of the things you don't see right it's more tense because of what you don't see and it's just a really really effective use of like camera movement but also of information delivery. And that's what this movie does so well. And actually, we'll, we'll push back on your... The final thing I'll say here, Sonny, is I want to push back on your complaints about the story and the structure because I think this movie does a really, really good job with information delivery, both in terms of the, the shots it chooses, but also in terms of the script and the way that it just sort of slowly moves you through the backstory of all the different parts and pieces of, of all the different gangs and all the different characters that led to this opening moment. And then it, right. And most of the movie is about unwinding that opening m moment. And then you have the final third act, right? The last 30 minutes or so, basically after we see from the outside, we see the truck uh, heist again. And then what we see is that, and, and then the, the, the third act is sort of, here's the consequences of that. And I just think it's it's so smartly done. It reminds me a lot of Quentin Tarantino. You've got the chapterized bits. You've got the stuff being told out of order. There's a little bit of Hateful Eight kind of uh, structure, a little bit of uh, Reservoir Dogs there. And I just thought this was, it was so smart and, and so effectively done. Um, I do agree with you that it's a little bit of a cop-out in the end. This movie doesn't quite want to go as dark as, 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 uh, as some of it seems to suggest. Before we before we get to Alyssa, I'm very curious to get her uh, take on this. But I the 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 issue for me with the the structure is that it has this great shot at the beginning that sets up a, like essentially a mystery, like what happened in this robbery, why did it go wrong, uh, why is Jason Statham so interested in like figuring out 
who who pulled it off. And then it just like answers them all in the in the next 40 minutes. And then there's still an hour and 20 minutes of movie after that. Um, I like I I am I I I feel like that is you you have to if you're going to if you're going to structure it like that it needs to pay off all at the end. I I, I don't know that that it it, it well it answers the question quite of that why way. he's mad first, but then it answers, but then it leaves a second question, which is who did it and who's he mad at, and that's it what does, comes it, out in the but last that, forty-five that, minutes. I, no, but that doesn't come out in the last forty-five minutes. It comes out in the middle, like thirty minutes. It comes out in the middle thirty I would, minutes. I want to like, hear. We, we I want to hear what Alyssa has to. Alyssa, I did not think. I did not think you were going to like this movie. I like. In fact, we had joked about this being a Mother's Day movie. I was like, this is specifically not a Mother's Day movie. Uh, but you, but you liked it. You were you were very effusive in your praise of it. What 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 did you what did you like about Wrath of Man? Yeah. Um, I, I, I periodically enjoy, I mean, I kind of joked about this on Twitter. Uh, it's like, I, I both hate, uh, the code of masculinity that involves, you know, everyone, uh, avenging themselves in like the bloodiest, stupidest possible fashion. And also really enjoyed this movie. Like I contain multitudes. Um, but I thought there was something really interesting going on, um, in the movie that each of you have us identified part of, but that I want to take a little bit further. Um. And I think that, you know, all of us really love that opening sequence with the sort of, obscure, you know, the very specific obscured perspective of the heist. But I think this is a movie about information control um, and what the lack of information does to us in our decision making and in our morality. And I think that's reflected really well in both the cinema you know in the cinematic choices and in the script and sunny i know that you don't like the fact that the mystery is solved for us before it's solved for h but i actually think that that adds to the moral dread of the movie right you understand once you know why he can't figure out who the criminals are and the answer is that because they are not part of the traditional networks of criminality in los angeles like they will not show up from him shaking you know, the trees of various other gangs and crooks because they have no relationship to those gangs. You start to see the cost of what he's doing, right? Um, you, I mean, he kills and tortures an enormous number of people um, in a quest for personal revenge that is headed in entirely the wrong direction. Um, and that means that he becomes sort of, you know... It, to the extent that a you know notorious crime lord can become more morally compromised, where he becomes more morally compromised, where even the people who are working for him, who you know are brutal and ruthless, have real doubts and qualms about what they're doing, and it's all wrong, right? And then even within sort of this little cell of criminals that you get to know in parallel, um, you know the sort of lack of information you know, the ways in which the characters extend trust that isn't necessarily deserved or warranted and the decisions they make sort of without complete information about what they're walking into. Um, I mean, it enhances the viewer's sense of doom, right? I mean, we don't have visual cinematic perspective on what's happening at every point in the movie. And in fact, I think one of the reasons that this was not just sort of bearable, but good for me, um, was that a lot of the worst violence is sort of out of the corner of your eye. We don't have complete visual perspective, but we have complete, we, as the movie goes on, always have slightly more moral perspective than the characters do once we get sort of the first flashback. Um, and I think those two things work together 
in really interesting ways to make this a really sad movie. Um, I think, um, and spoiler alert here, if that's okay. Yeah, we're gonna we're um, gonna get spoilery from here on. So just folks, if you if you want to see the movie, and you should, it's a good movie. Go go see it, and then come back to this podcast at this time, whatever time it is right now. I think it is a huge mistake at the end of the movie that they don't kill Statham's character at the moment when it seems like he's dead, um, because that would really clearly complete the point that you know. This may be vengeance, but it's also just complete and utter self-destruction. And it settles for a sort of, you know, this has been a sort of morally corrupting, miserable experience that has not actually brought H his son back. But I think it was just sort of a cop-out to let him come back and actually kill the guy who killed his son. Um, Yep. And it's very, I mean, if they had stuck with that decision... um, you know, I could see this taking that sort of last step to be sort of a morally uncompromising great movie. I don't think it's there. Um, But I really enjoyed the sadness in it and the fact that it doesn't, the the movie never lets Statham's efficiency as a killer overwhelm that sense of sadness. Like, even in, you know, you have this early set of scenes where he is either, you know, murdering Post Malone, who, as I said to Peter, has become like the go-to person that you have murdered early in an action movie because he's annoying and it's satisfying to see him <laughs> murdered on screen. Um, or even when he is like staring down and scaring off his old gang um, when they accidentally attempt to um, rip off the car that he's in. Like, he's awesome. The show, the movie has a little bit of fun with that, especially through, like, Rob Delaney's, you know, corporate honcho guy who's like, he's murdering people. He's a legend. It's awesome. But somehow there's enough sort of tonal control in this movie that that air of sadness and grimness you know, doesn't get swept away by those mo- those moments. And I'm not a huge Guy Ritchie fan because I think he often has problems with that sort of calibration um but i actually think he pulls it off really yeah i think the ending is it's 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 worth just talking about just a little bit because i think the ending is symbolic of the of or representative of the film's biggest problem which is that it wants to be a, a pretty dark and despairing film and for the most part it pulls that off tonally but it also doesn't quite have the it's it, it's it's timid about making Jason Statham's character a it true was, bad guy. And so was, even in those yeah. sequences in the middle where he is torturing people, like the bad guy, the, there's always a worse bad guy who gets what he deserves, right? Like you go to well, the... And he also... And there's, like the movie wants to have a sort of a sense of justice and it wants to give, to make Statham a a deliverer of justice, right? And to make him and essentially... Like morally, yeah. like to not morally compromise him in a deep way. And in the torture scenes, they often have him providing the sort of moral out, right? Like they torture a guy and his girlfriend. Um, He gives them information that they think is going to be valuable. And, you know, H tells his goons to give the guy $200,000 and the key to a truck. Um, They break up a pornography ring that has nothing to do with the fateful hijacking. Um, He kills the like sort of sadistic pornographers and then gives all the cash they have on hand to the women that they've basically been trafficking. Um, right. The movie the movie wants to have its cake and eat it too yeah. and that's that's the big problem with the end where Statham survives what should have been a mortal wound for the second time in the film um, and comes back to kill 
uh, uh, Scott Eastwood. And 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 I mean, the, I think everybody knows that thing, you can't the, kill Jason Statham. Don't even thing, try. The problem. The problem with this is that there you could have easily you could have easily still had Scott Eastwood's character receive justice while also driving home this idea that vengeance is ultimately self-destroying that wrath of man destroys man himself right because what was what i i I remain convinced that the whole andy garcia detective subplot was a vestigial plot point where jason statham does die i'm convinced there's a cut of this movie where jason statham actually dies and at the end of the film the cell phone that he has slipped into the bag is is you know brings either his crew uh, of of baddies or Andy Garcia to Scott Eastwood's house and they take him down they take they take him down they take him to jail or so you're kill convinced him or whatever. That there's an ending that's basically promising young woman. Uh, more or less, yeah, more or less. I mean, I but I think that there's that that would have that would have been a that would have been a more I think satisfying thematically conclusion to all this, and it also would have like let Jason Statham be the guy who ends up taking everybody down, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, it just it just the the ending. I agree with you guys that the ending does not work. He blinks and he doesn't go full full nihilist. Uh, this could have been a a nihil a nihilistic classic on par with the the counselor. It doesn't quite get there. Um, the one I I, I want to push back a little bit, Alyssa, on your point about uh the information delivery here because again there there's we we talk about information being obscured from the characters and and. Uh, what it does and the 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 bad decisions that they make, and there's a again there's a version of the story where Jason Statham realizes, oh, I can't figure out who the villains are this way. I can't figure out who the villains are by torturing uh, all of the criminals in town and by shooting Post Malone in the face, despite how great it is to shoot Post Malone in the face. I can't I can't do it this way. So I'm going to embed myself in the armored car company. I'm going to figure out who the inside man is and we're going to solve the problem this way. And you get a little glimpse of that where he goes to the lady guard's house and has sex with her and and he's like, where'd you get this money from? I have pictures of your parents. If you tell anybody about me, they're gonna die. And like, okay. And so like, okay, he's got, he's gonna do this whole detective thing. He's gonna like solve the crime this way. And then it cuts and then it cuts to Jeffrey Donovan and his crew of ex-military goons. But I think and, the point no, but, is like that plan is never going to work. But I'm saying I'm I'm saying that like you, you could have had a you could have had no, but it it, it would it was on its way to working right. Like there's a version of this story where he he starts investigating all of these people, looking for the inside man, and he can't he and eventually he he you know figures out it's Bullet or whatever. Instead, you just have Bullet tell him on the day of the robbery. He's like. I'm the inside man and we're going to take down this score and you're just going to sit there and take it. Right. Like, I mean, it just like it's, it is, it is a lot of telling us the things that are happening without having anybody actually discover them. And that is like, it is just not dramatically or narratively satisfying. Oh, I, I actually disagree because I think the whole point of the, like the whole point of sort of the late reveal is that like, even this secondary plan of like, okay, he's not going to torture them into the information, but he's going to, like, be a master detective. Like, that also is not working. And they've set up the whole thing with, like, Bullet telling him because they need um, everybody's face verification to get into the cage, right? That, like, that's been something that's repeated over and over again um, in the sort of routine of the deliveries throughout the movie. 
Um, so I actually think that's set up pretty well. Um, can we take two seconds to talk about how great Holt McKellen is in this and in everything that he's in? Like, just as, you know, can this be an objectively pro Holt McKellen podcast? Yeah. Just as we are. No, yeah, I with, actually did. I did. Sunny. I did not love him. I did not love him in this, and I didn't love him in Greenland recently. Did you guys see Greenland by did any not. chance? He's in that for like two minutes, and I didn't like him in that either. I like him a lot. Have you seen him in Mindhunter? I like him in Mindhunter. I like him in Mindhunter a lot. But there's something. There's something about his work here that is just. It's. It's just, uh, I don't know. It's like weirdly broad for me. It didn't work. I, I didn't liked work. it. So some of the dialogue he has to deliver is weirdly, like, it's it's both quite specific um, in the way that it, like, in, in the word choices and not quite realistic. And he delivers it like he's in a 1980s David Cronenberg film. And there's this weird artifice and distance in his performance that I thought actually really worked in a super brutal, super grim genre film like this that you just don't always see where the, you know, where, where like these movies, you either get like really functional dialogue that is pretty bland at best, like you saw in, in Without Remorse, or you get a bunch of, uh, you know, collegial Quippy. joking, right? It's just, it's joke cracking. And here what you had was, was a guy who was being given like, joke cracking lines that he delivered in a way that was that was off and it was just and it was it was interestingly off all throughout and i loved listening him to him say like he he talks about a chinese restaurant and he's like are you sure you don't want to go to the atlas whatever at the starlight lounge their chicken noodles are the bomb and he just says it in in a way that's like that's haunting and strange and like you you remember that you remember his his vocal rhythms because they're so ever so slightly off. And I, I, I really loved it. I loved seeing him in this. And I think that, you know, part of the part of the thing is that you couldn't you didn't need to have Jason Statham discover that it was Holt, that um that it was H. You know, excuse me, that it was Bullet. That it was Bullet. Because it's Holt Michelinney there to tell you that's who it's gonna be, is the guy who he's close to. The guy who is the firearms uh, trainer, who clearly has some military background and is uh, and is involved with all of this, and the movie is not gonna it, it's not a detective story. It's a it's an anti-detective story about how you can't figure this stuff out. It's gonna come to you because this is just sort of fate, and it's all and all is woe. Yeah. I also think the uh, playing with Josh Hartnett's like the long attempt to turn Josh Hartnett into an action hero by casting him as just like a total coward um, was really fun. I enjoyed that decision. Yeah. I thought he was, he was good at this. I mean, I, 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 I don't, it's funny. I'm, I'm complaining about this movie a lot, despite the fact that I really liked it. And I'm, I, I'm just, I'm picking a lot of nits here because I, I do think it is like two ticks away from greatness. I just think no. it's not, it's not quite there. And that, that is the most frustrating sort of movie uh, for me. Yeah. I don't know. I did not love Holt uh, McElhenney in this. I thought he was. I thought his. I. I thought his line deliveries were just not not great. In and not off-putting weird. Just like not great. I don't know. Um, he did not. He did not work for me. Uh, I thought. I, God, there was somebody else in this movie who. Hold on. Let me uh, pull up the IMDb uh, that I. I did Eddie Marson, who I usually love. Um, and it plays the, like, uh, the, like, put-upon office boss, um, who, uh, you know, is, is, like, kind of freaked out by Jason Statham killing everybody all the time. 
Like, again, I just thought it was like, it was like a weirdly inappropriate, I think the character, I, I didn't like how the character was written more than how he performed it. I thought he was, he was fine in his line deliveries and stuff, but the character was just like slightly off. I know he has to play against the Rob Delaney, like uber excited boss, but still, I, I just, like there's, there's like, it's There's just, a certain hyper reality to the movie for sure. It exists it in genre world, right? And it is it is a formalized and stylized genre universe that that it exists in where you know the sky in Los Angeles is never blue. It's always this weird whited out shade of almost, you know, of quasi gray where yeah. uh, every room is painted dark on the you know on the interior and the walls and most of the floors even are are super dark, right? It's this it's a world that is not unrecognizable. But it's also but it's been designed off. in a particular way to evoke a particular sort of form of darkness and a and a, a particular feeling. And I think all of the performances are mannered um, in in a similar way, uh, and and work pretty well with the weird darkroom design of things. And I, I I admire how relatively restrained this film is, knowing how Guy Ritchie just loves to sort of manically show off. And this yeah. this is not a manic movie, and that's a good thing. No, I I, I agree with that. I it is it is again it it, it really felt like a nineteen seventies crime movie with a, a slightly more updated sense of how to how to move the camera and how to frame your shots and how to block the sequences. Uh, all right, so what do we think? Uh, thumbs up or thumbs down on Wrath of Man, Alyssa? Thumbs up. Peter. Thumbs up. Sunny. Thumbs up. I still like I still like it a great deal, even though I'm sitting here being a little nag about it. Uh, all right, so that is it for today's show. If you loved it, make sure to check out our members-only bonus episode on the best of Jason Statham. This is not his best movie, believe it or not, but it's it's still a pretty good one. Uh, and make sure to tell your friends. A strong recommendation from a friend is basically the only way to grow podcast audiences, and if we don't grow, we'll die. Uh, if you did not love today's episode, please complain to me on Twitter, at Sunny Bunch. I will convince you that it is, in fact, the best show in your podcast feed. See you guys next week. 